You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Bible challenges humanism head on. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org. Humanism which promotes personal satisfaction focuses on the present. Many humanists deny the existence of God. This gives rise to evolution, which denies any intelligence in the complexity of life. However, Bible teaching portrays that man as self-focused and deceitful. God, as creator, has a plan for the world. He will ultimately intervene to bring harmony and peace upon the earth. Now, although we today live in a supposedly Christian uh, uh, country, it's nevertheless true that our society is becoming increasingly secular. We... uh, live in a country now where belief in the existence of God is no longer considered to be acceptable or the norm. It's going back a few years now, but you might remember this advertising campaign that was uh, launched uh, in London and then rolled out um, over a number of cities across the United Kingdom with this slogan, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And that's a, you know, a point of view that today is shared by a lot of people, I would say, in our country. And of course, this uh, advertising campaign was organised and funded by the British Humanist Association. Now, humanism is a particular philosophy. It's a philosophy that places uh, supreme importance on the human race. Okay, so according to the humanists, man is at the pinnacle of everything. Man is of prime importance. He is very much in control of his own destiny. And uh, left to his devices, he has the ability and the power to uh, solve his own problems by the application of logic and human Reason. So humanists are basically atheists. They don't believe in the existence of God. Man is very much on his own. Uh, there's no other existence beyond this present life. So this, this life is it. And it's therefore the duty of the human race to make this life as comfortable and as pleasurable as possible. That's essentially the philosophy of the humanists. Now, humanism is not new, okay? As a philosophy, it dates back to ancient times, really. But what's happening today at the moment is that the humanists are are becoming increasingly vocal in promoting their views, quite aggressive in their opposition um, to the existence of God. So I'm sure we've all heard of this man, Richard Dawkins, Um, He is uh, Emeritus Fellow of New College Oxford, and he has used his 
uh, high academic profile to publicize his atheistic views in, in such publications as this one, The God Delusion, in which he argues that a supernatural creator almost certainly does not exist and that religious faith is just basically a delusion. And, and this book has sold millions of copies, millions of copies, and it's been translated into over 30 different languages. So this is a significant um, thing in this day and age. Now, Dawkins is by no means on his own. You know, there's a lot of high-profile humanists in our country today who are doing their utmost to try to discourage people from believing in God. And, you know, we have to accept that they have been very successful in promoting their views and in forwarding their objectives. So whether we agree with them or not, we have to concede that the humanists have had a considerable impact upon all aspects of our life uh, in our current society, whether it be in education, religion, politics, or economics. Because you see, in the humanist's opinion, man is on his own, and man is therefore of prime importance. And because of this, humanism has conferred upon man various rights. So for example, we read about the right to work, the right to strike, this is topical at the moment. This is in the news right now, the right to strike. Freedom of expression. Sexual freedom, again, a really hot topic in this day and age. And, and women's rights, and, and so on and so on. So humanism has conferred upon the human race these so-called rights. And so we find that many of the political systems that operate in today's world have embraced these humanistic principles. And so, for example, the, this is the American Declaration of Independence. And it states that man has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So there is humanistic philosophy embedded in the American Declaration of Independence. And, and this was what the late J.F. Kennedy said. He said, our problems are all man-made, therefore they may be solved by man. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. That is essentially humanistic philosophy. Now, on the face of it, many of the principles that underpin humanism may, you know, appear to be quite good and reasonable. Surely, we might say, man does have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What's wrong with that? Isn't it right for man to uh, try to solve his own problems and, and, you know, to enjoy the good life on earth? But you see, the problem with that is that the humanists are looking at the world from entirely the wrong point of view. Because the humanist philosophy is entirely man-centered. And as we said at the beginning, humanists are atheists. 
So they do away with the need for the existence of God. Man can sort out his own problems, thank you very much. Uh, and in fact, Richard Dawkins has gone to the extreme of saying that actually Christianity is not just wrong, it's evil. So immediately then we can see that there is a conflict between what the humanists are saying and what the Bible says. Because you see, the Bible tells us that there is a God, the creator of heaven and earth, and that he, God, and not man, is in control of world affairs. God has a purpose with the earth that he is working out in his own good time, and man's efforts will not be allowed to frustrate the purpose of God. And so, for example, we read uh, words like this in the Bible. This is from Daniel chapter 4 where it says that this matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men so that's what the bible says god rules in the kingdom of men now the humanists reject this and of course, the upshot of this in our modern society is the development and largely the acceptance of the theory of evolution. You know, the evolutionists believe that life came about entirely by chance over millions of years. There was no intelligent thought, no intelligence at all behind the complexity of life that we see in the earth. And of course, we know that this view now um, is taught in our schools and in our universities as fact and, and appears not even to be questioned by society as a whole. Now, one of the um, fundamental principles of humanism is that man is essentially good. Man is a moral creature. This is what the humanists believe. But just compare that with what Jesus says here in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. This is what Jesus said about man. He said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. So that's what Jesus said about man and the heart of man. This is the Bible perspective, that man actually is not essentially good. Jesus just states this as a fact here. You know, it doesn't even require any qualification as far as Jesus is concerned. Out of the heart of man proceed all these evil things. And if we just stop for a moment and look at the world that we're living in and see what's happening and see what has happened over the years, we can appreciate that this assessment that Jesus makes is actually true, isn't it? You know, it's just some of the horrific things that have happened in, you know, not so long ago. Just testify to the fact that Jesus was right. And Jesus is not on his own in making this assessment of the human condition. Just have a look at this 
verse that we read in the Old Testament from the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 17. And Jeremiah says that the heart, the heart of man, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So again, you can see that there's a total divergence between the humanist point of view who says that man is essentially good and what the Bible teaches. And so there's no way that a teacher, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can embrace the principles of humanism. And it follows, of course, that if Jeremiah's assessment of the heart of man is correct, and if Jesus is correct, then, you know, we can have no confidence at all in man's ability to solve his own problems, rather the opposite. Left to his own devices, you know, man is just going to sink deeper and deeper into the abyss. And what Jeremiah says later on in chapter 17, he says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land and not inhabited. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. So, you see, this is the choice that we're faced with today, to put our trust in the opinions of such men as JFK, who said, you know, our problems are all man-made, therefore man can solve them, or to put our trust and our confidence in God. Now just have a look at these words that we find in the New Testament in James chapter 4. Because you see, and you know, we know this from our own experience, that you know, we have no knowledge at all of what is going to happen to us in the future. And, and James makes this point. He says, go to now ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings, all such rejoicing is evil. And that's true, isn't it? You know, how can we put our trust in man's plans to create a perfect society on the earth if we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, man's destiny is totally beyond his control. We, we can't even be certain about the simple things of life, never mind the weightier issues. But you see, the God of the Bible is an omnipotent God. He knows the end from the beginning. He is the creator of heaven and earth, and God has a plan. This is what the Bible teaches us. God has a plan, and his purpose is being worked out according to his time scale. So what I'd like us to do now is to turn to that chapter that we've read from, 
<clears throat> Daniel chapter 2, and, and take a look at this section of Scripture that leaves us in absolutely no doubt as to this fact that God is in control of world affairs, that God has a definite purpose with the earth. And, and maybe if we have a look at this, then it might help us to see the claims of the humanists for what they really are. So in Daniel chapter 2, we have really what I think is a most remarkable prophecy in which the whole course of human history is revealed by Daniel the prophet right from the days of Daniel who lived about 600 years before the time of Christ right up to our own days and actually it also tells us about things that are going to happen in the future and I'm going to suggest that once we get to grips with this prophecy then really we shall have no doubts at all that firstly God exists and secondly that God is in control not man God is in control of human affairs as it said in that verse that we looked at earlier the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men so this chapter tells us about a dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar who was the king of Babylon and God gave him this dream to show to him what was going to happen to the mighty empire of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar had built. Now, remember that we said that humanistic philosophy has existed since ancient times. Well, here in Nebuchadnezzar, we have an example. Because, you see, he did not accept the existence at this stage in his life, of the God of the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar believed that he had established Babylon in his own power as a utopian empire and, and by the strength of his own arm. And so it tells us this in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30. It says, The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honour of my majesty. So that was Nebuchadnezzar's opinion. You see, it's all me, me, me. I've done this. Aren't I wonderful? Now, of course, the splendour of Babylon has become legendary, hasn't it? You know, the famous hanging gardens are, are considered to have been one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Nebuchadnezzar's opinion was that he had built all of this by his own strength and ingenuity. He was very much in control, not only of his own destiny, but of the destiny of his people. God played no part in the process at all. <clears throat> but you see, God had another point of view. And in Daniel chapter 2, God gave to the king this dream to reveal to him that the mighty Babylonian Empire was destined for destruction and that ultimately the kingdom of God would be established upon the earth. So let's just pick up the narrative in verse 29 where Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar, 
As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. So this is why God gave this dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. Here, here was Nebuchadnezzar dreaming about and thinking about what was going to happen to his empire in the future. And so God gave him this dream to show to him what was going to happen. So what did he see in his dream? Well, let's just remind ourselves. Verse 31, Daniel says, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, this great image whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron and his feet, part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so this is an artist's representation of what Nebuchadnezzar might have seen. This great image standing in front of him that was made of these different metals. It had a head of gold, breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron and feet of a mixture of iron and clay. And then he saw this stone that was cut out of a mountain without hands and it hit the image on the feet, ground the whole image to powder, the powder was blown away and then the stone grew into a great mountain to fill the, the whole earth. So that was his dream and Daniel was able by the power of God to reveal to King Nebuchadnezzar what this dream meant. So what, what did these metals represent that Nebuchadnezzar saw? Well, Daniel explains the meaning of the dream for us in verse 37. He says, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And so Daniel here explains to the king that the head of gold represents the Babylonian empire over which Nebuchadnezzar himself reigned as king. Thou art this head of gold. And, and it was Nebuchadnezzar's intention that Babylon should last forever. But that was not to be, as the dream made clear. Babylon, we know, was destroyed in about BC 538 by the Medo-Persian Empire, the joint armies of Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. And thus was established the Medo-Persian Empire, which is what the next part of the image, the breast and arms of silver, represents, where 
In verse 39, Daniel continues to say, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. That was the Medo-Persian Empire, which lasted for about 200 years until it was conquered by Alexander the Great, this gentleman on the left-hand side of the picture. This is a famous illustration of Alexander the Great defeating Darius the Mede at the Battle of Issus. And it was at his hands, Alexander's hands, that the third empire was established, the Greek Empire. And that's represented in Daniel chapter 2 by the belly and the thighs of brass in verse 39, where Daniel says, After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And so it was that with the passage of time, Medo-Persia gave way to the Greek Empire, established really by Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander was a formidable warrior, but he died when he was only 33 years old, and, and the Greek Empire was then carved up amongst his four generals, and a number of wars then ensued between these different sections of the Greek Empire, and the result of these wars was the emergence of a fourth power, the power of Rome. And the Roman Empire is represented in Nebuchadnezzar's dream by the two legs of iron that we have here in verse 40, where Daniel says that the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. That's a very fitting description of the the very ruthless way in which Rome uh, stamped its authority upon the world and ascended to the status of a world power. So let's just stop for a moment and, and think about what we have just seen very quickly. What we've seen is that the four metals of this image that Nebuchadnezzar saw represent four empires that were going to arise on the world scene one after the other. And we can look back at history and we can see that history actually testifies to the fact that these four empires have existed. And so the prophecy that was given by Daniel has so far proven to be accurate. But we've not finished there because we now need to think about the last part of the dream and in particular those feet, the feet of the image that were made of this mixture of iron and clay. So what do they represent? Well, look at verse 41, where Daniel says, And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And so Daniel explains to us there that these feet that were made of this mixture of iron and clay represent the division of 
the fourth kingdom, the kingdom shall be divided, he says. And this is exactly what happened to the Roman Empire. We know from history that the Roman Empire gradually deteriorated from within, as indicated by the, the title of this famous book, Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And as a result of this slow, gradual deterioration, we have the modern world that we live in today. There is no fifth empire. Instead, we live in a world that, that's divided. There's some strong nations, some weak nations, and, and that's fittingly represented by this mixture of iron and clay. So you see, when we come to the, the feet of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, we're considering the, the world that we live in today, the modern world. Now, in his dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a stone hit the image on the feet, and the, the image was then ground to powder by the stone, and the stone then grew into a mountain and filled the whole earth. So let's just think now for a moment about what that represents. And again, we, we don't have to guess because the prophecy tells us in verse 44, where Daniel says that in the days of these kings, in other words, the days represented by the feet of iron and clay, that is, in our days, in the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. And so Daniel says that the stone that destroys the image and that grows into a mountain represents the kingdom of God, which will ultimately extend over the whole earth. So Dan Daniel is telling us that God is going to establish his kingdom on the earth, which will last forever. And it's then when the kingdom is established that all those problems that have plagued the human race and that the humanists have proven incapable of solving will be addressed and the earth will ultimately be renewed. So you see, the humanists have failed in their endeavours to bring about a utopian society, but the Bible is telling us that God's kingdom will come. But the question is, can, can we believe this? Can we be any more certain of God's promise to establish his kingdom than we can of the, the confident statements of the humanists. How do we know that we can trust what the Bible says? Well, just think for a moment about this prophecy that we've looked at. You see, Daniel here predicted hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, 
that four empires would come into existence, one after the other. That prediction has been proven to be true. There can be no dispute about that. And I would suggest to you, therefore, that that being the case, we should be able to have equal confidence that the part of the prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled, that talks about the future, will also certainly be fulfilled. Not only so, but the accuracy of the prophecy proves beyond all doubt that, you know, contrary to what that London bus campaign said, there is a God in heaven who knows the end from the beginning and who has a plan with the earth. And so just to conclude, I just want to appeal to you all to look into the Bible, to look into God's word and find out what God requires of us so that when his kingdom does come, we might be invited to enter into it. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.